Hey, hi, hello, y'all. This is RB, captain of the SS Midwest, welcoming you aboard another episode of Take the Last Bite, a show where we take Midwest nice and tuck it into bed well before bedtime. On today's episode, we get a strong dose of education and honesty from a down-to-earth emergency room and travel nurse from Chicago. But before we get our vitals checked, I want to hype up another Midwest-based changemaker, Dominique Morgan. One of Dominique's missions in life and practice is to dismantle the systems that perpetuate violence against Black trans people. Among her extensive accomplishments and roles, Dominique has served as executive director of both The Okra Project and Black and Pink. She's an incredible musical artist using hip hop as a storytelling tool. And now she's added another huge distinction to her list, a street named in her honor. Once upon a time, a young Dominique lived with her parents and siblings in Omaha, Nebraska. It didn't take long for the common narratives of racial profiling and disproportionate rates of law enforcement interactions with black folks to reach Dominique as a preteen. Dominique's youth was interrupted by incarceration, including 18 months in solitary confinement, and today she is a fierce advocate for LGBTQ folks entrapped in the prison industrial complex. When she arrived in Omaha on July 31st for the street naming ceremony, the Dominique Morgan street sign hadn't replaced just any street. It sits at what is now formerly an intersection of Taylor Street, which happens to be where Dominique's childhood house is located. When we look at recent history and think about who is traditionally commemorated through street and building namings, there's a messy series of imagery that might come to mind. On one hand, we may think of promising imagery such as Black Lives Matter being painted down major city streets. We may also think about campus buildings named after racist old white men who donated millions of dollars, or the recurring street signs damn near everywhere referring to dead presidents. Either way, Black trans women are unfortunately not well represented on that list. And oftentimes, when we do celebrate, commemorate, and contend with the legacies of Black trans women, they're not around to see the unveilings. The newly named street in Omaha, Nebraska, is a testament to the invisibilized contributions of Black trans women and femmes, a reminder that Black trans folks have roots, lives, stories, and backgrounds that are more than their identities, that they're here in the Midwest, This place that's presumed to be nothing but cornfields and fascists. Trust me, we have them. But there's a whole lot more going on here. This signage is a gesture the local officials in Omaha could decide is enough. But it's also a token for accountability. A way to say, hey, are you really going to let transphobic shit happen here when you've got a badass black trans woman on your street signs? All of that to say. Congratulations, Dominique, on living a life you once couldn't imagine and deciding to embrace it. For all the gifts you've given the world, I'm ready to see more acknowledgments like this come your way. Today's guest is very familiar with piecing together a life path after career derailments, the threat of incarceration, systemic racism, and a profit-driven healthcare system. Brittany Daniels has spent the last five years in emergency rooms and has seen some shit. So much shit that she started to write down little bits of info, quotes, racist interactions, and has now compiled her quickly written notes into Journal of a Black Queer Nurse, which came out in May 2023. I chat with Brittany about how she found herself working in emergency rooms, her front row seat to a deeply racist and busted healthcare system, and how her book aims to signal boost the need for healthcare professionals to do one simple thing to improve patient experiences. Have a seat in the waiting room and we'll be right with you for another episode of Take the Last Bite. 
why can't we be in space with hundreds of other queer and trans folks and having these necessary conversations? When it comes to dynamics around privilege and oppression and around identity, well-intentioned isn't actually good enough. And how far is too far to drive for a drag show? I don't know, we're in Duluth right now. I would straight up go to Nebraska, probably. <laughs> if you are not vibing or something's not right, or also like there's an irreparable rupture, you have absolutely every right to walk away. Definitely gonna talk about Midwest nice. And if that's if that's um, as real as it wants to think it is. Midwest nice is white aggression. That's what it is. Why don't we start a bit with you introducing yourself and if in that you could include um, just a bit about what your connection or relationship is to the Midwest. Definitely. So uh, my name is Brittany Daniels. I am an emergency room travel nurse. I'm an advocate before that. Um, I have worked in numerous emergency rooms across the entire mm -hmm. country. I yield uh, from Chicago. I, you know, had most of my upbringing here in the city and in the suburbs surrounding it. And honestly, the Midwest has shaped who I am. I am very fortunate to have grown up in this area where, in this geographic area where I could be who I wanted to be without overt fear of being harmed by others or um, being, you know, unsafe. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of why I always come back home, you know, mm -hmm. even in all my travels, always coming back to the Midwest because there's just a certain there's a certain, you know, feeling of acceptance and safety here um, that I don't really think I have found elsewhere. Mm. So, I'm ironically actually surprised, um, but grateful to hear that that's been your experience. Because sometimes I think I just uh, am really on this because we had a conversation recently on the podcast with someone from the West Coast. And I was explaining mm. that there's a lot of pressure for Midwesterners to go elsewhere because there's this romanticization of like the west coast the northeast mm. you know these major areas are far safer than areas in the midwest because what is often projected on us though chicago you know is arguably <laughs> like not illinois right it's its right. own thing <laughs> so like it almost kind of just offers a whole different vibe so like yeah. I, that's really cool i appreciate that perspective it's kind of not common <laughs> in kind of what <laughs> what we talk to Midwesterners about. So thank you for that. Um, so emergency travel nurse, can we put a little um, loose definition on like what that has looked like, what an emergency travel nurse does for folks who might not know or be as familiar with that type of nursing? Definitely. So uh, generally coming out of nursing school, we as bedside nurses will work at a hospital as a staff nurse, we'll pick a specialty. That specialty doesn't have to be forever, right? Some folks sort of uh, drift in and out of different specialties trying to find their niche. Um, for me, it's always been emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. So I worked in an emergency room as a staff nurse for almost two years. And, you know, after the first year, I decided I really wanted to you know, like you said, uh, sort of explore other areas of this sure. country and see what's going on outside of the, you know, Illinois state lines. <laughs> and so as an emergency department travel nurse, after building up a year of experience, I am able to sign up to be contracted to work at various hospitals for, you know, eight, 13, 12 weeks at a time, uh, depending. And it gives me the opportunity to work somewhere for a short period of time versus, you know, working there for uh, years and taking on a permanent position. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we don't get the training that, you know, we get as a staff nurse. So as a staff nurse, you'll get, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 weeks of orientation or, or training with uh, another nurse side by side working with another nurse but as a travel nurse you usually get one day or maybe two days of orientation and that's really not uh, showing you anything other than the uh, logistics of the department you know there's the break room mm -hmm. there's the bathroom there's <laughs> this this is how we do that all right you're on your own you know so yeah. it, it was definitely challenging at first um, but you know after after, you know, gaining the experience that I gained at, at various hospitals, I really became comfortable with it. 
Got you. That's really helpful. Um, I, as a clarification too, right? I think my my personal perspective, for example, of travel nurse in this day of pandemic living has been what what seems like travel nurses, especially being utilized for additional support in either understaffed um, clinics or emergency rooms in your case, um, or areas where there's a, an enhanced need, especially in this time of pandemic as a immediate reference point of, you know, folks, uh, areas that need additional support for a variety of reasons, um, you know, breakouts of COVID in this case, um, or other scenarios. Has that been kind of the general trajectory of a travel nurse? Or did that kind of shift where you're being sent to high priority, low resourced areas? Has that been more of a pandemic influence? So travel nursing has always existed um, for as long as I can remember. However, uh, the pandemic definitely changed travel nursing. Okay. And so instead of, you know, hospitals always need help. Hospitals mm-hmm. are chronically understaffed. They The turnover is high and that's just what it is, right? So hospitals are um, always needing additional support from, from nurses, but mm-hmm. the pandemic changed that. It changed the... Uh, the rates that travel nurses mm-hmm. were getting paid at it changed the amount of hours that travel nurses were working it changed everything so every aspect of uh what we thought was travel nursing mm-hmm. was quickly <laughs> quickly <laughs> altered <laughs> in it. the face of covid so you know it it was it was different and and okay. i don't want to say it was worse or you know or better but it, it definitely changed the and a lot of people didn't know about travel nursing until the pandemic a yeah, lot I think of that's folks where I'm at. Started, yeah <laughs> yeah 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 exactly so I started traveling in 2018 whereas most folks tra- started traveling in 2020 and there was actually a little bit of you know the Ebola scare um oh, during sure, my yeah. travels yeah so you know there's always going to be something that uh changes the the um the need at, at different hospitals. We're seeing, you know, older nurses who are retiring now. Uh, we see a lot of nurses who are are exhausted and burnt out and leaving the bedside. Yeah. And so there's a there's a constant need. But yes, COVID absolutely changed that in a way that I don't know if if travel nursing will ever be the same. That's useful. Yeah, because like I was like I just said, like I don't know that I was as abundantly familiar or aware of the role of a travel nurse pre-COVID, right? In some ways, sure. it feels like COVID kind of uh, utilized, you know, this arsenal of travel nurses across the country to deploy them in places yeah. where <laughs> there were these major outbreaks or lower vaccine rates that were contributing to outbreaks, etc. So it's useful to know that prior to kind of this, this literal global health crisis, that <laughs> travel nursing also pre that offered maybe a smaller scale version of that, but ultimately what I'm hearing from you is kind of this diversification of experience where you get to kind of see what is happening in other places, how other folks do things, especially if there's a unique factor. So that sounds like there used to be a less uh, uh, frenzy tone yeah. to travel nursing <laughs> and yeah, that, the yeah. pandemic rocked that a little. So that that's useful to know. That's helpful. Okay, look, got it. Nailed it. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> Um, good to know. Um, let's talk about um, maybe some of your trajectory into nursing, just kind of the origin story here. How was there an aha moment? Did you always know? Did you get kind of redirected from plan A to plan nursing? Like, how did you get I sure here? did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would call it derailed. Uh, no, oh, I, no. <laughs> I, I, no. I love nursing. I, I love being a nurse. No, I started so... Um, to to origin story, as a high schooler, we had to have our meeting with our guidance counselor to talk about our future plans. And I had at this point, I had zero idea what I wanted to do. Nothing like I, I wanted to stay out of jail. I wanted to keep a roof over my head. It's all I knew. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that was the goal. And so I'm sitting outside of the guidance counselor's office waiting my turn because there's a student in there. And there was a tower with pamphlets on it. And so I'm sitting there spinning the tower, um, mostly, mostly out of boredom, honestly. Yeah. Um, but I see a black girl on one of the pamphlet covers and she's got a firefighter uniform on with a helmet and an axe and everything. And I was like, okay. holy shit, that's so cool, right? Yeah. I can do that. You know, if she can do it, I can do it. 
And so um, that just speaks to, again, like the the importance of representation. And so when I went into the sure. office, I told the guidance counselor, I want to be, <laughs> yep, I want to be a firefighter. This is what I want to do. And so, you know, we started discussing like what, what needs to happen in order for me to do that. So fast forward um, through my cadet training, um, my volunteer slash part-time work as a firefighter, uh, I started working, uh, I, I had to get my EMT license okay. as a requirement. I didn't want to, and I really pushed back against it because at that point, it, there was a culture of it's not cool to do the medical stuff. It's only cool to do the fire stuff. And that was just okay. like the, the culture of firefighting. It was all very separate. And now uh, it's very combined. It's very fluid. Um, mm -hmm. So you can't do one without the other okay. um, in most departments now. So anyway, I had to do 40 hours of shadowing uh, in the ER and I fell in love with the emergency room. That led me to uh, working as an ER tech which I loved and I was really good at it and I enjoyed it and it didn't pay well at all, you know, but it, 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 it did what I needed it to do. I could pay my bills. I could support myself. And I was really, really happy with the work. Uh, and so one day a doctor asked me to put a liquid bandage on a patient and I did. And the patient was fine, was discharged home. But the next day I came in and I was terminated and they said that it was because I wasn't supposed to put a liquid bandage on a patient. I was working outside of my scope of practice um, and someone saw me doing it. They reported me, you know, whatever. Oh so, yeah, yeah. And, and the, <laughs> physician, the physician that was working with me got a, you know, a, a finger wagging and told not to, you know, have techs do that. Wow. Yeah. And so that's when I decided I was like, well, I guess I'll go back to school. <laughs> and, oh, you know, I just like forced me to stop settling. And I was really comfortable again. And I wasn't planning on furthering my education at all. So being terminated really like gave me the kick in the ass that I needed to, you know, move forward in my career and to really utilize the knowledge and the skills that I had. So it's like, you know, if I'm doing stuff that's outside of my scope, I should probably make it my scope. Uh, sure. And so that's how I ended up in nursing school. What <laughs> a wild trajectory. Yeah. That's so good. That's yeah. so wild. I'd be pissed. I'm sure you right? were pissed. I'm hoping you were pissed. So pissed. <laughs> I was like, so what? pissed. This person told me to do this. <laughs> I'm still oh, pissed. Wow. <laughs> good. Yes. Yeah. Damn. Damn. Yeah. I mean, you know, I guess silver lining because now you're doing something yes. that you're clearly very invested and passionate about. Um, how was the schooling process then? Was that smooth sailing or was this? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'm a good student. So the academic portion was fine, right? Like I'm a, I'm a person who is really committed to learning and I, I love, you know, taking in new information. I love applying mm -hmm. new information. So that part, test taking and things like that, I I didn't struggle with at all. Okay. It was everything going on outside of school, you know. So mm. I, at the time, you know, when you're in nursing school, it's difficult to maintain a job. And so I was working part time so that I could go to school and do my clinical hours, which are very, unpa very unpaid. So you're working 12 hour shifts at a hospital um, mm. with your, with, you know, other classmates and your clinical instructor but that's time away from being able to work and make right. an income, right? So between studying, being at lecture and being at clinical, I didn't have a lot of time to work. So at that point, I moved back in with my biological mom and just like bumping heads because, you know, she's expecting me to help out financially. And I'm like, bro, like, I really mm -hmm. can't. <laughs> I am not <laughs> you know, the one. <laughs> I'm, exactly. I'm doing what I can, but truly I will be done with school in a year. Like, just please like chill. Yeah. And, and so that was was really frustrating is trying to, you know, and I, I can't imagine how folks who have children and families do right. it, but they do, they figure it out and they do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's so important to have, uh, you know, a support system because nursing school is difficult. And, you know, I know that I say that I didn't have an issue with it, but that's because I would spend six, six and a half hours at Starbucks. They knew me. They knew me at Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. they knew my name. They knew my drink. They knew what I was doing. And so it's just one of those things where if you don't have that, uh, that support, it makes it a little bit, it, it makes it a little bit more challenging, but, mm -hmm. you know, 
other than, you know, struggling financially throughout nursing school and dealing with those uh, familial issues, it really was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything. If I had to go back and do it again, I would do it all over again. It was totally worth it. Oh, good. Good, good. Yeah. I, I had shared with you before I hit record. I have a very close friend who's a who's a nurse and um we were in college at the same time and like we did we hung out plenty somehow but also there were other times where I'm like where are you like we were a world <laughs> apart academically sometimes I'd be like yeah. oh yes it's midterm time that matters to you I was an English yes. major I just gotta I gotta write a story you we're a world <laughs> apart right now yes <laughs> definitely definitely yeah it, it's it's hard right because folks it's hard to understand what what a nursing student goes through and what they deal sure. with. And that's why, you know, for me, so my journey, everyone's nursing school journey is completely different and yeah. unique. But mine was a two-year associate degree program, started working, did the online RN to BSN or bachelor's program, then did my bachelor's program to master's program online while continuing to work. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently doing my master's to doctorate. So yeah. it's just, it, yeah, thank you. Yeah, right? like one step at a time, uh-huh. just making sure that I can earn an income while going to school. Um, and that's why for me, I I work at the school uh, that I that I graduated from part-time, uh, Purdue University Northwest. And I spend as much time as I can with the students so that mm-hmm. they have the support that they need, right? Mm-hmm. Email me if you have a question, if you're struggling, let's spend time together in the in the skills lab, in the simulation lab, and just being an ear for them. Mm-hmm. Because having someone, just knowing someone who is a nurse changes ev- everything for mm-hmm. a nursing student. Because you're talking to someone who has gotten past the, the hump or that mm-hmm. gate or that fence that you feel like you can't Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't uh, mount so it's really important to have that that uh, realization in front of you that hey I'm human too I you know I I, I cuss and I make jokes and <laughs> I'm normal right like I'm <laughs> black as hell I'm queer as hell and I like to have fun too and I I did it and if, so you can do it and it's just an, a, a reminder for them that it's it's possible because sometimes I feel like especially in healthcare folks folks try to make it seem like everything is so uh impossible and yeah. uh unattainable and it's not it's simply mm-hmm. not that's so good do you feel like your experience too has been um has that particularly mattered in an ex like a in an additional way for queer students and black students that you've engaged with i'm imagining Oh, 1000 <laughs> percent. Yeah. One day I was recording a video and I was asking the students, why do you like having me? This was when I was a grad <laughs> aide. I current, I work there now, but before I was a graduate, uh-huh. a graduate aide. And I, I said, why do you like having me as your grad aide? And one of the students straight up, like, like straight face was like, because you're gay. And it was just the best, right? Because it was a student who was struggling with their coming out, with their family's acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. So just having someone around who Mm -hmm. is openly queer was really, you know, really helpful for them. And Mm -hmm. it was sort of an escape um, from the, you know, strict Christian norms that their family believed in, right? So yeah, having someone who who can appreciate and understand what it's Mm -hmm. like uh, to be um, a sexual minority, a gender minority uh, in in academia and in healthcare is really important. No, that's so good. That's so, so good. And yeah, I, yeah, I mean, as an educator too, right, working full-time with like college students and, you know, not all the folks that I work with are going to connect, but for the ones who do connect, I, I can see, and I'm sure you've experienced a version of this, like you can see and feel like the connections being made much faster or in a much more meaningful way yes. when they're like, ah, yes, kind of to your point of like, I saw this pamphlet with this black femme firefighter um which just adds a layer of gender trouble to it by itself (laughs) yes yes right just like that was that was a opening for you I love that um so let let me piece together a timeline just to clarify right so you do the schooling thing right you have a great time you do this arduous you know nursing Mm -hmm. program process you get your paper and you are off to what? What are we doing right after school? Are we in the emergency room and travel nursing right away? 
So yeah. we're in the emergency room right away. Uh, travel okay. nursing, uh, I had to wait because you have to have one year of experience in your specialty before they'll That's allow right. you to travel. Although I did try after six months and they were like, girl, bye. I mean, the worst you could hear was no. You, you Right, know, right. Yeah. It was worth a shot. It was worth a shot. I was like, let's go. I'm ready. And, and again, you know, we're talking about how travel nursing has changed. For me, it was about mm -hmm. seeing different cities, seeing different states. Yeah. I, I had never seen a palm tree in person. I had never oh. seen a mountain in person, right? Yeah. So like, that's what it was about for me. Um, so yes, I started working in the emergency room right away. Now, that was difficult because I, honestly, almost as arduous as school because okay. it's so hard at that point to get hired as a new graduate nurse in an ER. They don't trust okay. new graduate nurses in the ER, right? Mm -hmm. And so they wanted me to have experience as a nurse anywhere else before working in the ER. Oh, wow. Now, uh, nowadays, there's uh, residency programs where they will allow new grads to work in the ER. They'll they'll have someone train really closely with them just to make sure that they're prepared before they get off of orientation. But in my day, um, they didn't allow that for new graduate nurses. So mm -hmm. I was in the so I was in Aurora, um, which is about 45 minutes west of Chicago. And they no one would hire me. I mean, mm -hmm. nobody would hire me. I was applying for job after job after job. I remember one interview specifically was in uh, DeKalb area, I think. Okay. And the manager said, why do you, why should I hire you? And I got emotional and I started crying because I was just so passionate about like, you know, serving the community in that capacity. And I told her like, this is what I meant to do. I'm meant to serve people. I meant to, to make people feel good in, in their worst times. And she was so like visibly irritated that I was that I was crying oh my gosh oh yeah and she like quickly was was uh telling me well you're not going to be able to make everyone happy people people come in here upset and there's nothing you can do about it and just her whole energy her whole vibe was just like that jaded I was gonna know, say she sounds grass. jaded oh yeah <laughs> definitely definitely I didn't get that job um <laughs> Yeah, which probably I'm glad I did yeah right probably for the better so I actually ended up getting hired at an ER that was so I was 45 minutes west of Chicago this hospital was like two hours west of Chicago so I ended up having to move uh further yeah. west to to take this job but for me it didn't matter I didn't I didn't care where I had to go I just mm -hmm. knew I wanted emergency medicine mm -hmm. I wanted to take care of people for every every type of illness, disease, injury, mm -hmm. I wanted to take care of people from all walks of life, right? Mm -hmm. Different demographics. I didn't just want to take care of one, you know, one gender or you know, mm -hmm. one one age group or anything like that. I really wanted a diverse patient population because I, I truly felt and feel like mm -hmm. that uh, makes me a better a better nurse and a, mm -hmm. a more equipped, um, well equipped nurse. So. Uh, I, I worked in that ER out there in the in that very rural area where sure. it was like ninety nine point eight percent white. I think it was like one of three black people in the whole uh, city, Oof. and so yeah, it was interesting. Surprisingly, I, I had good experiences with like neighbors and stuff like that. Right. No one really, you know, bothered me or or right. anything like that. And I lived alone, you know, mm -hmm. so I was nervous about that, but mm -hmm. it, it worked out fine. So sure. one year and I, I I did. I'm sure you've done thousands of liquid band-aids in the in the time since uh, school <laughs> too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Without any issue. <laughs> right. So honest funny story, like those the liquid bandages aren't even used very often anymore. It's just I'm just so mad. Yeah. <laughs> but the things that were not in my scope are now now they in my in scope, right? Scope. And I'm teaching people how to do them now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Come full <laughs> circle moment. We love that. Definitely. We love that over a liquid band-aid. Yes. Um, you started to hit um on just kind of naming your perception of safety versus kind of what maybe your experience of safety was and how it kind of sounds like there was you know, in this first go being in a rural area south of Chicago, that there was there was chance, right, which is inevitable based on queer experience, mm. BIPOC experience, etc. Um, which feels like maybe a good place to tuck into like, let's name or like, you know, can you share some of the notable experiences, both the highs and the lows um, of working as an emergency room and 
travel nurse, especially, you know, eventually during this onset of a pandemic that, as you've already said, totally jostled the whole definition and concept of what a travel nurse can do, let alone what the emergency room has looked like since 2020. Definitely. Um, The, you know, in in the book, I share, Mm -hmm. you know, these little um, blips of, of, time and my experiences and interactions and encounters with other people um I would say that the book is probably like 30 percent of what's actually in my journals um <laughs> okay you know, I've <laughs> there you know for for various reasons right like some of the stories were just too specific too identifiable some of the okay. stories um were involved minors where I wasn't uh, you know comfortable with even yeah. um, altering them so for me I would say and this is this is something that was present in that rural area and and elsewhere right the some of the most you know progressive areas that you would imagine working in like the LA area where mm-hmm you know, I had folks saying things like, I want, I want a white nurse. Can I have a white nurse? Um, and that, that was for my patients. But the thing is, is that this is, it's so multifactorial. Like I have, mm-hmm. you know, racism and bigotry and sexism and, and homophobia coming from my patients, but I also have it coming from my coworkers right. and a lot of those coworkers being physicians, right. Who are trained to take care of people. And so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to identify like where right where the issue is because it's it's kind of everywhere mm-hmm. and it's not just me who's you know a victim of right. these um these isms it's the patients too right it's other nurses it's other healthcare providers as well so i would say that some of the highs have to do with the advocacy that i was able to mm-hmm. provide for people for people and their families and being able to really like completely change the outcome that the patient had. Um, whereas if I wasn't there, just imagining what would have happened to them. So that's probably the, you know, if I, if I stopped being a nurse today, I would be most appreciative for, for that, for the, the change in outcome that I've been able mm-hmm. to provide to people you know, whether that be uh, someone being able to uh, get home safely, someone being able to access the medication that they desperately need, that mm-hmm. they have been denied, um, you know, things like that. And and the lows, you know, for, for a lot of nurses, like death is one of those things that stays with us uh, yeah. for long periods of time. But I truly think that there's things that are worse than death, right? Um, when you see someone who's visibly in pain, mm-hmm. um, you see someone who's who's distraught and then you see the person who went to school for over eight years, right? To learn how to care for them and to intervene in mm-hmm. these moments. And you see that person doubting them. You see that person judging them. Mm. You see that person actively refusing to take care of them. I think that that's honestly worse than any patient I've seen die, you know, in my career, watching people be denied the Mm. treatment and the care that they deserve, the very minimum, uh, you know, of care that they deserve because of what they look like, because of how they sound when they talk because of where they come from, because of uh, their, uh, their, you know, outward appearance, their, their, their clothing, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, mm-hmm. watching people be uh, mistreated and watching mm-hmm. people be dismissed because of that is heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds devastating. And you have, you know, this front row seat to that in a way that, you know, I don't, a lot of us don't, you know, I, I frequently, you know, name to people, I feel like, because there'll be an article or some kind of story share in some way, shape, or form that speaks to a queer trans person's experience or a person of color's experience, especially um, pregnant Black women, right? Like, there's a lot of narrative mm-hmm. that I think we're finally seeing in abundant form of, like, these are not exceptions to the rule. This tends to be the rule, and this is how things are playing out. And for every one more publicly visible 
story. There's probably a hundred more right behind mm-hmm. it that are very similar across all of these different areas. And it's one thing to hear those stories, right? And it's right. one thing to metabolize and kind of act on. It sounds like a whole nother thing to kind of see it front row seat in plain sight and be kind of within the machinery that is doing this I can only imagine (laughs) yes Mm -hmm. yes it makes it makes me feel complicit right and even if I'm pushing back against what's being done or not being done Mm -hmm. you know the thing is is that you get put in this position where uh you know that you need to advocate for someone right because Mm -hmm. if if you don't their outcome is going to be worse but you also know that if you advocate for this person, in some cases, that means the loss of your job. That means it's hard mm-hmm. to get on your back. Mm-hmm. And that has been the case for me in a lot of hospitals where, you know, I speak up and then, you know, boom, that target is plastered on my back. Yeah. And I'm uh, labeled, you know, as a troublemaker, as someone mm-hmm. who talks back, as someone who is difficult, um, you know, to work with or to be around um, mm-hmm. because, all because I asked the doctor not to call the patient a bitch, right? I'm wow. the problem. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so me pointing out like, but, but then I'm the troublemaker because right. they're a doctor, right? And I'm just a nurse. So I should How be talking, yeah. right? How dare I, right? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm the problem. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, being a part of a system, right? Where a system that, that, puts physicians or higher ups in a position to say and do whatever they want without mm-hmm. having to take accountability mm-hmm. uh, and where nurses can't hold them accountable. It makes it very frustrating and it makes it hard to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where would you say kind of your maybe eye opening or kind of awareness originally maybe was built of understanding that health disparities existed kind of where did that start that you feel like has now allowed you to be in these spaces with a certain language and a certain lens to name to folks like now we can't do this i mean that example is pretty obvious we can't really be calling patients bitches like that's probably that sh- that right. should be really it's an obvious <laughs> one but there's more i mean i know you know we can name we could try to name them but like i'm sure there's there's certainly more kind of covert less oh yeah evident, but still negative impact ways in which that still manifests without blatantly calling someone an insult where do you feel like you started to build that recognition to make it so that you have this strong ability to advocate in these spaces for your patients and for yourself and for your colleagues I'm sure yeah I was I was fortunate enough in my career to to not necessarily um, be overwhelmed by bigotry in the beginning and that's because um, once I got fired from my job in the ER I applied to be a medical assistant at Planned Parenthood And that job was amazing. Um, I worked there throughout nursing school. And, you know, there's just, there's a specific culture at Planned Parenthood, right? Inclusivity, uh, diversity, um, and just acceptance. And so I didn't see, right, the the healthcare, um, the the effect, the overt effect of healthcare disparities in that job. Um, I feel like the eye-opener was when I was a patient and okay. I had this conversation on another podcast they asked me what was my first experience of healthcare um, discrimination and that was when I went to you know I I was in a position where I was having sex I wanted to go get tested and I was young and so I went to my doctor's office and I and my doctor had been out so I was seeing another physician that was in house and it was an older white man fine, no big deal. It's not anything, you know, super invasive. So he, I sit on the bed. He asked me what brings me in. I say, I'm here for testing. And he asked me, well, do you, who do you have sex with? And I was taken aback right by him asking me that because why, why does it matter if I'm, if I have sex and I'm asking you for testing, then I should, we should just be moving this right. Where's the cup? Let's go. (laughs) Right. And so um, I tell him that uh, I have sex with women, uh, people who identify as women. And he, you know, kind of like threw his hands up, shrugged his shoulders and was like, well, you don't need HIV testing. And, oh, you know, wow. at that point, right, I'm so young that I don't know how to even counter that. I don't know right. what to say to him. And I just felt like there's nothing for me to do except 
listen to him and take his word for it. And I ended up leaving the appointment without any testing done. And instead of using my insurance to get the testing there, I ended up paying out of pocket to get testing at a, a random clinic. Oh, wow. And, you know, who didn't accept my insurance because I had an HMO. Um, and so it was really frustrating, you know, because I knew what I needed. I'm asking mm -hmm. for what I need and you're denying me that mm -hmm. um, because of my sexuality. Mm -hmm. And I think that was it for me when I was like, okay, I had to pay really close attention, you know, in in my life as far as paying close attention to how people are treating me yeah. when I go in for medical services. And that just never left me when I became a nurse, right? Yeah. So I see myself and everybody I take care of, um, regardless of if they're uh, Black, regardless of if they're a woman, regardless of if they're queer, I know that everyone is incredibly vulnerable when they're a yeah. patient, right? And so just identifying that and being vigilant in the way that people are being treated. You know, if someone comes in and they're intoxicated, they're automatically immediately treated just very different than any other patient. Mm -hmm. And so I almost have to play this role of like, I don't want to say like vigilante, but like almost <laughs> like a, like a, right? Like a mild vigilante or like a security <laughs> guard for these patients where yes. I had to make sure that they're not being, you know, betrayed by the one person who's, you know, who took an oath, right, to right. do no harm to them. Right. I think what, you know, also strikes me about that already asinine exchange with that, like, doctor who's like, you don't need tested for HIV because that's just not possible, is that, like, if you, in your infinite wisdom, weren't already in that space with an awareness that that doctor was wrong, how someone else could have been misinformed and potentially been at higher risk thinking that they were exempt and how that then continues to perpetuate yes. the cycle of folks not knowing, um, having the information they need to make informed choices about their health. And that just is a whole nother life. Yes. That yep, makes me exactly. really angry. Like, yes. if you didn't know, right? You were just going to yep. take it as sacrosanct because this is a doctor. This is someone who's supposed to have authoritative knowledge. Yes. And they are incorrect. And that is exactly. so bothersome. Yeah. Ugh. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. The it's harm so that can bad. be done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is one encounter. Uh-huh. It does. Yeah. You know, and so this almost doesn't surprise me that your your kind of like villain era <laughs> yeah. like your, your villain era originated with some yep. shithead doctor who said something that was <laughs> off off base and incorrect. Yeah. Because like I said, for every one story, there's dozens and dozens and dozens more. Um and right. I think that, you know, as I live in a rural, a more rural area, and I think I think an encouragement that I give folks a lot is like to pay attention to these health systems in these spaces, because mm -hmm. the more, the longer you look at them, the more it's like uh, I spy book. Like the more you look yes. at it, the more nonsense you find. And it's like, yes. oh, this is all part of a larger issue. Like it's not just you. Right. Um, it's not personalized to you. It's just that these systems don't know how to handle marginalized people. And right. we got to figure it out. So exactly yeah because they weren't they weren't built they weren't no. built for marginalized people right no so yeah a lot of people are still having a hard time figuring mm -hmm. that all out mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's uh let's chat about this you know cute little project you did this really you know nonchalant <laughs> thing where you went and published a whole ass book about what sounds <laughs> like a combination of personal anecdotes um <laughs> some commentary and points made about these health disparities we're talking about so let's talk about just kind of the the impetus for the book, kind of how yeah. you landed on the, the you know, Journal of a Black Queer Nurse. How did this come to be? Where <laughs> did this come from? And tell us a bit about the book. Yeah, Journal of a Black Queer Nurse started as literal journals, uh, small <laughs> little books that I kept in my pocket. And to be to be transparent, they did not start off as like me uh, expressing my feelings or reflecting. They started off as just important information that I didn't want to forget as a new nurse um, you know, things like certain drugs that, you know, were important to give you know, the difference between different medications, things mm -hmm. like that. And so I started using it for that reason. But then, you know, I started to, again, just hear these, you know, I, I was a fly on the wall, baby. Like I am, I, <laughs> I seem like I'm not paying attention, but I'm always listening. Right. <laughs> and so I'm hearing these doctors and these PAs and these um, these nurses say things that I feel like are um, inappropriate, right? Yeah. Or 
um, or racist or homophobic. And I got to a point where I, I was like, you know what, I'm writing these these things down because I don't want to forget that that they were said. Um, I don't know. I had no plan on, you know, publishing, you know, this this book when I started journaling. It was truly just a way for me to mm-hmm. reflect on different experiences, different exchanges. Um, you know, sometimes it was what a patient said to me or, you know, what a patient said to their family member mm-hmm. or what a doctor said to a patient. It's just very memorable experiences that, you know, in the hospital, you don't have the opportunity to just like, I need a minute. I, I just need a minute to think or reflect. Right. Like that's not a thing in the hospital, no. unfortunately. Um, someone dies, you 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 tag them, you you bag their body, you fill out the paperwork, and you take care of the next patient. There's no time yeah. to do anything, it's no time for introspection. So I knew that I needed to make time for it, even mm-hmm. if that was at home. So um, that's why I started my journals. And, you know, year after year, I'm like going, I'm literally like going through these journals and I have a stack of them. And as I'm traveling throughout the country, I'm noticing, wow, these places aren't so different, right? That, yeah. that you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, xenophobia, it, it, crosses every single state line in this country right it crosses mm-hmm. it, it transcends through every hospital that I've worked at and I'm like it it's it's not following me like it's just here right mm-hmm. it, 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 it exists it it exists within the the foundation of these hospitals and these emergency rooms and so that's when I decided that these stories um you know a variation of, of these stories needed to be told mm-hmm. and I can't, you know, I'm telling these stories like in passing to like stu- nursing students to mm-hmm. make up. I, I tell stories a lot to to make a point or to yeah. help really, you know, solidify a, a concept. And as I'm telling these these stories, they're like, no, no way. There's no way that happened. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, after hearing that so many times, I'm like, they really can't believe me, you know. And so <laughs> yeah. I'm like, if they can't believe me as nursing students. Right. What about the rest of the world? Right. You know, they don't know what happens in the ER. They don't know what happens to grandma when she's there by herself and you're not there to Mm. to protect her. You know, they don't know. And so that's why I decided, you know what, I'm taking these these stories. I'm going to change them up a bit so I don't violate anyone's privacy. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm going to to try to publish a book. And it worked, you know, and now conversations are being had that I've been begging right to to yeah. have for for years and people are becoming aware of these injustices that they didn't even know existed in mm-hmm. the world before and, mm-hmm. and that's all i ever wanted by sharing these stories was to really open people's eyes mm-hmm. so that they can sort of you know just for a second imagine what it's like for marginalized people to be that vulnerable and to be in a hospital and you know realizing that we're not all treated the same Mm -hmm. you may think you may assume that everyone goes in the hospital and they're treated the the best you know they're given the best care that they deserve um the the doctors are working as hard as they can for them but the sad and the the terrifying truth is that they're not and depending on what your skin color is depending on what genitals you have depending on who you're having sex with that all can affect your health outcomes yeah. it it can affect how long you live it can affect how soon you die mm. and it's 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 terrifying so yeah just a simple book right just a simple <laughs> just, you know yeah i just just, you know, a I, just a little something. Just a little that I shared with you again about my my good friend um, who does nursing and is a gem of gem of a friend of mine who, you know, I told you she'll post, you know, on a damn near daily basis, regardless of where yeah. she is or what she's up to, you know, no incriminating information, but she will yeah. list out an exchange um, yes. akin to being asked for a different nurse or she will you know, be hit on on a regular basis and yeah. someone will pursue it a little harder when she's like, nope, mm. I'm taken and I'm a lesbian or I'm married to a right. woman or my wife, my wife, you know, how yeah. it changes yeah. things, you know, she'll post on a regular basis. And like, it's stuff that you can't even, un- you can't even fathom, 
And it's like, you're not even, you're giving us the tip of the iceberg of shit. This yes. just happens to be what you were able to type out on a quick little, yeah. you know, walk down the hallway to the bathroom, <laughs> you know, like just what else is going on? Yeah. And it makes me sad for, you know, I, I don't know the numbers and maybe you do, but the numbers don't matter. We know anecdotally that like LGBTQ folks are mm-hmm. well represented technically they're they're not paid attention to but they are well represented in care (laughs) fields right nursing um caretaking of a large variety right we are thrush in those areas and see some shit and hear some shit um in a wide way and so you know uh, when I shared with you about my friend posting it you're like as she should and I was like yes because it's definitely throwing this wrench in what has been kind of this more covert common experience of folks in in either on the patient side or on the you know you're a person with multiple marginalized identities working in the healthcare field hearing stuff and I'm sure there's a reason that you know you were you know some someone's going to say something in front of you because they're not they're not thinking about you in the room yeah literally (laughs) literally I'm here (laughs) you know and just like who are you like you're just a fixture in the room Brittany sorry So just this <laughs> important project of like documenting these experiences in a way that can then, you know, like you said, you had no intention necessarily of like, I'm gonna start writing a book. <laughs> like you're right, like, I'm right. gonna jot this down for either personal purposes, for informative purposes, for yeah. just data, you know? Yeah. And I think that uh, the pandemic in many ways has informed like document everything you know put this on blast if it matters and put this out in the world to kind of start the conversation so Mm -hmm. I guess I'm curious too so it's been um about two months right it came out in May yeah the book yes um the journal uh came out in May (laughs) um it's been about two months what has been the reception what has been the feedback how have folks received this so far what has come your way what is what are some of the conversations have already started around this being in the world so um the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I, of course, expected and still expect there to be uh, outrage, right? Yeah. Um, and even like, you know, you you know, you said that you've seen some of my TikToks, you know, yeah. I've had to block so many people from TikTok oh, no. um, because I've gotten so many hate messages and, you know, things like, oh, no yeah. one wants to read it. No, no one cares that you're black and queer. Why would you write a book about being black and queer? You know, that doesn't matter. Boring. Right, right, right. <laughs> Boring. Boring. <laughs> or like, you know, some people are have said things like, I would rather die than be taken care of by a queer and this and that. Why? And you know, right right literally I'm like well not without a DNR baby but anyway uh <laughs> not without a DNR um I have had um I've been invited to Johns Hopkins which was a pretty amazing experience yes. I have an event um uh where I am speaking to uh, a class a diversity class at Harvard uh in okay. October I've um you know, I've been on a number of uh, podcasts. I've had great conversations with great people. I really am just so grateful that it's been received as well as it has and mm-hmm. that people are amplifying it. I hope that it continues to just, you know, grow. I hope that people continue to learn about it. I hope that people who have the platform, right? People who have um, millions of people who are following them and want to know um, their every, you know, every move. I want those people to really um, take this book and use it, use their platform to amplify it because mm-hmm. the importance of these stories can't, it cannot be understated. And healthcare is one of those things where folks don't really, unless they work in it, right. Or unless they're constantly uh, a patient or involved in it somehow, right? Family, they don't really think about it. Um, but there's no time for that. There's no time to not consider healthcare and the harm that's done mm-hmm. within the walls of these hospitals every single day. You know, we hear about, um, you know, there's this 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 podcast called The Retrievals where this nurse is stealing the fentanyl from patients who are getting IVF. There's 
you know, that show on Netflix, The Good Nurse, where that guy was literally killing patients. You know, you hear you hear yeah. so much and this, this stuff is really romanticized and um, and amplified and promoted all across the country. And, you know, lots of, you know, money is made off of it. Sure. Yeah. And it's entertainment, you know, uh, to an extent. But when it comes to important things like talking about racism in healthcare, um, when we talk about the the poor health outcomes of queer and trans folks because they feel like they can't go to the doctor because the last time they went they were treated poorly. Exactly. We mm-hmm. start to talk about that stuff um, and the the outcomes that we experience because of it. Nobody wants to amplify that kind of work, mm-hmm. and so I really want to hold people accountable for and it doesn't have to be my work it doesn't have to be my book you know when we talk about medical racism i always mention harriet washington's book medical apartheid i i mm-hmm. name drop that book every chance i get right because mm-hmm. it's my responsibility as a person who wants to advocate for change to recommend mm-hmm. resources that way and so i really i want to see this book blow up and not for me i don't make i don't make much money off this book my publisher is, is small mm-hmm. right they're you know they're not in they're not in the business of you know trying to make money mm-hmm. they're in the business of trying to change the world mm-hmm. and so i want this book to blow up so that we can change the world beautiful and that's common notions correct is that's that common notions yeah got it yes okay that's where the book can be found um I have medical apartheid on my um, yes. to read list. It's been there for a while. Yes. <laughs> I have a lot of books on my to read list. I'm a heavy reader. So like, it'll be there for a while. It'll come into my hands when it's supposed to. There's another yeah. book that has come to mind this whole time that I know I've talked on this podcast before, but it's called um, The Care We Dream Of by Zena. Sh- I can't, I can never remember if it's Sherman or Sharman. I always mess it up, but um, it's kind of this anthology of her own work, but then some guest um, essays talking about different areas of like health and wellness from a very, you know, non-health system perspective. And I will talk yes. that one up for days. So if that's not um, something you've read yet, I think you'd find it very, very interesting because the whole premise, Done. you know, she starts this book with this really like just jaw-dropping question of like, what would it feel like to enjoy an interaction with like a doctor or like mm. in, a, in a doctor's visit? And it's like, oh, wow. Like that, did, you know, for most queer <laughs> trans folks, like that doesn't even feel like it's in the realm of possibility. And yet, right. you know, we can work towards that. We can find these, you know, different pathways um is there any like very like uh tactical or like actionable specific things that you think you would underscore either from the book or kind of in your experience that like are low-hanging fruit definite things that should be focused on to improve you know these health disparity issues or just kind of an experience for a person in the emergency room or in any you know interaction with healthcare system honestly there's just there's just one and it's listen you know listen, listen to your patient period like there's no um you know so often i see uh doctors and nurses uh even you know techs and things like that talking over a patient and because they're so mm. busy trying to get their message out they're missing the entire message that the patient is trying to convey to them and so uh you know we move quickly in in healthcare especially in the emergency department mm. And that's understandable, right? Because there's a lot of people that need to be taken care of. And I've I've even like I've gotten in trouble at hospitals, right? Because they say that um I've taken too long in the patient's room and things like that. But yes, yes, this is real. Um we have to listen. We have to. Um yes. I've had a patient who was trying to like encode, tell me that they were being abused, right? And it was because I slowed down and it was because I listened and let her talk Mm -hmm. and allowed her to express the body language that she was trying to express. Mm -hmm. That's how we were able to figure out that Mm -hmm. she was with her abuser. You know, listen, listen to your patients. It could, it could truly save their lives. As someone who, you know, exists on the patient side of things and has experienced a lot of what we've talked about today, either the the quickness and missing things, not listening, being, you know, dismissed because of yeah. XYZ reason. Yeah. Like the listening thing would be a game changer. And so that I co-sign, retweet. Yep. That, Thank, yes you. To that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, yes, you. Retweet to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, I work with a lot of young folks too, like, you know, as an educator, like I said, and it's, it's, again, it's, for every one story I hear from a student who, you know, is trying to find an affirmative or just reasonable provider for a wide 
variety of things, whether it's on campus or off campus, like it's the same deal. It's, Mm. you know, this wasn't a good fit. This wasn't a good match. Now I'm getting, you know, ran around the ringer and just like not getting the answers I need, you know, and sometimes the answers don't come fast because there's something particular and it really matters if that, you know, that practitioner is going to take the time to continue helping you seek the answer. And this is going to be a mutually, you know, beneficial relationship beneficial, or yeah. it's gonna be I'm cranking you through I'm currently rewatching house <laughs> <With Nice>. like, <laughs> for all of the problematic shit that is for sure yes. taking place in the show I decided I wanted to rewatch it from start to finish and season one there's this big wig who comes in and he's like I'm gonna donate a hundred million dollars to this hospital but you gotta follow my rules and he's very business-minded and oriented and he wants house to be out of there because he's wasting money because he's taking his time and he's doing this deep investigative kind of figuring out what what is this very rare or specific or complex issue that's happening with this person? Right. And so he's saving maybe one person a week, which by the businessman standards is not sufficient not and is not working on a business model that he has in mind. So eventually that man takes his money, but they keep the person who's taking the unnecessary time to look into a person's experience. So right. Shows a little problematic, but ultimately, yes, like just like <laughs> when you take the time, you know, to really look into the details and take the proper time, you can unearth things that will ultimately improve, you yes. know, someone's health outcomes and life outcomes and et cetera. And for queer and trans folks, BIPOC folks, women, children, et cetera, like, I hope that there's going to, I I anticipate, you know, and I'm curious from your perspective, this, this little ballooning is kind of happening of like, we keep bringing up all these stories. We're naming it outright. Folks are realizing that they're not alone in feeling dismissed and gaslighted in their experiences yes. in the doctor's office and vice versa. Folks who are in the healthcare field are saying, you're not paying us enough. This is not sustainable. We can't care about people if we if you don't care about us is what right. we're also seeing across the nation right now. You know, where does where does the burst happen, right? When does it fall out from underneath right. itself? You know, what is what does it look like? What does this pivot look like into a more just and truly patient and person focused healthcare system you know how do we get there what is like what is on the horizon as we see things continue to be really unsettled from this pandemic definitely we I mean what's most important is that we keep having these conversations Mm -hmm. um you know having the conversations brings awareness right Mm -hmm. and again there are so many people who are going about their day-to-day with zero awareness of what's going on around them you Mm -hmm. know so I think that it's going to be really important for us to keep pushing um with this with this information Mm -hmm. to keep pressuring folks to call things out as they see them I think that us telling our stories really does um make folks feel more comfortable in doing the same Mm -hmm. and the more uh the more awareness we bring to these issues the more people are going to be held accountable. And if people aren't being held accountable, then we're going to hold the people who are supposed to be holding them accountable, accountable. Mm-hmm. Right. And so at some point, um, you know, this, ha- it has to collapse. It has to, mm-hmm. and you're right. Nurses are not going to stay in a field where they're not getting paid a, a wage that allows them to feed their families, mm-hmm. where they're not getting paid a wage that they can't work, you know, a normal amount of hours um, without not being able to pay their bills. Mm-hmm. This is um, the nursing has so much potential healthcare mm-hmm. healthcare system has so much potential. And I really think that it's going to take us again, um, you know, talking about it out loud and being unapologetic in the way that we approach it, calling people out in, in real time um, and, you know, ret- retaliation is a thing, right? But retaliation yields. Uh, if someone retaliates, right, they end up being ho- held accountable for doing mm-hmm. so. That's true. So we have to be we have to be fearless in the way that we approach these medical providers. And I'm not saying like go up and like hit someone or like call someone a dick. I'm saying like systematically, right, and and professionally or whatever, approach them, call them out see how it's received. If it's not, then take the proper steps to follow up, you know, send the email, CC everybody, have your receipts, have everything documented mm-hmm. um, because this, this can only go on for so long. Mm-hmm. The work continues. Yes, it does. 
Um, <laughs> I want to give space and time. If you have anything else you want to add before we put this in a nice shiny bow um, and wrap up this conversation that I could certainly have for hours. Is there anything else you want to share, add a name um, for folks here? Um, uh, I'm going to name drop a podcast called um, Distrust and Disparities. They, okay. um, one of the, the hosts is a nurse uh, and also uh, a black nurse, a black travel nurse, and the other is uh, a, a community outreach um, professional. And they every week talk about you know something else that you know, some some topic that affects um, um, BIPOC folks in healthcare. And you know, one of their episodes that really resonated with me was when they were talk they were talking about uh, testing and the stigma mm-hmm. surrounding STI yeah. testing and that, and it really made me think of that experience that I had with that doctor and 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 you know the more the more conversations that we hear that we see ourselves in it makes us you know it just liberates us so you know we're a community we have to you know keep doing the work together and really pushing each other that's the only way we're going to get free a word um, Brittany, this has been spectacular. I'm so glad to have had the time to chat with you. I'm very interested in seeing how your book, Journal of the Black Queer Nurse, fuels some upcoming conversations. It's just, you know, it's in it's in its infancy. It has it has room yes. to really shake shit up. So I'm excited to see what yes. that means for you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Take the Last Bite is made possible by the volunteer labor of the Midwest Institute for Sexuality and Gender Diversity staff. Our larger work is sustained by the contributions of grassroots donors. If you would like to support the life-saving work of empowering, connecting, and educating Midwest queer and trans communities, please consider setting up a monthly or one-time donation at sgbinstitute.org backslash giving or hitting that green donate button on our website's homepage. Our inbox is open for all of your insight, feedback, questions, boycotts, memes, and other forms of written correspondence. You can contact us at lastbite at sgdinstitute.org. Particular shout out to Justin, Andy, Nick, Danielle, and Michelle for all of your support with editing, promotion, transcripts, and production. Our amazing and queer as fuck cover art was designed by Adrian McCormick. <laughs>